Hello, principals, and welcome to the NAESP Principal Podcast. My name is Rachel George, and I'm an educational leader in Oregon and an NAESP fellow. And my name is Adam Welcome. I'm an educator in California and a fellow with NAESP in the Innovation Center. All right. So Adam and I are so excited to bring you all this episode of the NAESP Principal Podcast so we can legit talk about real ideas with amazing principles, but in this case, an amazing educational leader to help make your leadership stronger and more innovative. And today we have a special guest with us. I'm just really, really excited. It's somebody that's written over 40 books, 40 and 100 articles on leadership and education. And I got to tell you, when he was presenting at NAESP this last summer, which hopefully you're signing up for Louisville, all of his sessions, standing room only. That's right, people. You weren't even able to get into a session because it was completely packed. So let's welcome Dr. Douglas Reeves to the show. Well, thanks so much, Rachel. It's great to be with you. Awesome. So diving in, um, why? I have so many questions, so many questions. Which one do I start with? Um, the first one we have, so the level of unfinished learning that we're observing throughout classrooms across the nation is incredible um, and, and pretty intimidating. So what advice might you have for educators as they're trying to make sense of the data and determine next steps? How might we move forward in supporting student learning? Well, first of all, let me just say thanks to all the principals who are watching us. I'm a very loyal supporter of NAESP. And I also want to validate the integrity of your question. When, when you said unfinished learning, I'm in too many places where people are afraid to talk about this or they'll debate about the semantics, whether you call it learning loss or unfinished learning or whatever it is. All we know is that the evidence is clear. And that is students on average were four or five months behind in reading alone, similarly in mathematics. But a lot of our listeners are saying, that's not exactly current news, Doug, because they were behind in 2019 before COVID even struck. And now having been out of school for quite a few months, teachers are really struggling not only to deliver current grade level curriculum, but behind. So I, I just wanna first of all validate that it's okay to talk about this stuff and you don't have to sweep it under the rug and you don't have to say, oh, just deliver grade level curriculum and then a miracle happens. If I'm, I'm, I started my life as a middle school math teacher and you know what, I can teach them middle school math, but if I also have to teach them how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, it may take more than one period. And that's the challenge that all of our teachers are facing with, uh, with schools who uh, are, are sixth graders who are reading on a third grade level, are third graders who cannot read, and are third grade teachers who are not used to teaching students how to read. So it's a real issue, and I just appreciate your raising it. Uh, so finally, to answer your question, I would just say number one, uh, number one recommendation for the leaders who are watching this is, is understand the stress your teachers are under and be empathetic to that. And number two, be flexible. One of the great gifts of elementary school leadership is that you've got some flexibility on time. So the question I wanna turn back and ask you and ask all of our listeners is, do you have the same schedule now as you had in 2019? Because if you do, you're telling me COVID never happened. So I wanna really ask everybody to be reflective in this conversation What's gonna be different now compared to before we taught? Different in schedule, different in leadership, different in pedagogy. I promise my next answer will be shorter, but that's that's how I feel. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so great, Doug. And I mean, when thinking about that, I work with a lot of people. I was talking to somebody today, actually the commissioner 
of education in Kansas, Dr. Randy Watson. And we were talking about all the rural areas. Yes. And I bring that up because I think about PLCs and a lot of people have the PLC or if they read a book or they've done a webinar or they've had somebody come in and do training when thinking about scheduling and grading and learning loss and just being able to put up barriers in our life and not be overworked and hectic and, and frazzled, how might having a PLC help us navigate through all of this? Uh, what would you recommend people do to help build the PLC? And I know this is a very inflated question and we could all probably talk about three weeks about this, but what are some steps if we want to give some principles that are listening, some tangible ideas, building and helping that PLC navigate through all of this? Well, I, I hope that you would be willing to share with your listeners an article that I wrote with late Rick before. In fact, it was the last article that he wrote before he passed away. And what Rick and I, uh, called this article was the futility of PLC light. There's a lot of people, as you suggest, they had the training, they had the consultants, they listened to the speeches, but all they've got is PLC light. And I've watched a lot of these and they simply are not getting to the fundamental issues of learning, assessment, intervention, and enrichment. Moreover, given how busy school principals are today with staff shortages, with subs, with discipline, they don't have time to be at every PLC anyway. So I, I guess number one, answer to your question is, let us clearly contrast the difference between PLC light and PLC right. And number two, give principals a break. They can't be at all of these, but what they can do, don't ask for minutes. Nobody's got time to do minutes. No principal I know has got time to read them. But what you can do is a four line email that corresponds to the four questions of the PLC. What do we want students to learn? How do we know if they've learned it? What do we do if they don't? What do they do if they have? The shorthand is learning, assessment, intervention, enrichment. And if every PLC meeting would simply send the principal that four-line email, and if the answer is, hey, principal, we didn't get around to question three, we didn't get around to question four, that's really good data for the principal to have. Because if you see all my PLCs are meeting, it's in the schedule, but all they're talking about is lesson plans, and they're not getting to common formative assessment, they're not getting to intervention, they're not getting to enrichment, that I would argue is an invitation to the principal to be at the, that next PLC. By contrast, if they're cooking with gas, they're telling you we get to at least, not every meeting, but at least once a month, learning assessment, intervention, enrichment, leave them alone. Let them be productive because they're telling you that they're operating autonomously. I don't know about you, Adam, but I love how that has been streamlined. It's simplified, but yet it really holds true to the, the really core foundations of what a PLC is about in that student learning aspect. So if you haven't tried out that four line email, trade in your notes, friends, because that's gonna be a game changer. And when staff are stressed, which they are, that's gonna be a huge, huge help for them. So kind of shifting gears, I don't know about, <laughs> you, Adam, or Dr. Reeves, but this summer, I really thought COVID was done. Like, I was like, woohoo, no mask. Like, and we're kind of conservative in Oregon with all of our mask and vaccine stuff. And I know you too, Adam, in California. But the Delta variant really took us for, for a loop. And a lot of our planning around initiatives really came to a standstill. And things that we thought we were going to be able to move forward with, all of a sudden, we were having to rethink this entire year. And so as we come into the middle of the school year, whether you're on semesters or trimesters, 
I am curious, what's your advice for those first 100 days of a new semester? And why might it be even helpful to take it 100 days at a time? What are your thoughts? Well, I really want to validate that kind of short-term perspective. If we've learned anything, it's that these dumb five-year strategic plans are worthless. I mean, how, how would you like to be the uh, superintendent who, who implemented a five-year strategic plan? I don't know, let's say uh, February of 2020. That five-year plan had a life of about 30 days. And moreover, I don't think teachers and building administrators have got the patience or time to say, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, how would you like to be the parent of a first grader who, who's told, we got a great literacy program, we're going to implement it after your kid leaves for middle school. So I'm all into 100 days. In fact, the book, thanks to, let, let me give props where it belongs, Dr. Bob Aker, and I wrote The 100 Day Leader because we are convinced that you can do a lot of very powerful things in 100 days. And for the morale of your staff, you need to give them immediate feedback. For the morale of your students and parents, they need immediate feedback. So talk about what we can do now that you can celebrate and seriously plan to celebrate in May of 2022. Don't tell them maybe someday, somehow, some year we'll get it done. In May of this year, before this year ends, plan that celebration. The other thing I would just add, Rachel, is a good 100-day plan, as Dr. Aker and I try to outline it, is not just about test scores. It's about us. What do we as leaders do? What do classroom educators do? You know, studying the, the, the flaw in most strategic plans, most accountability systems, is that they only look at test scores without looking at the cause variables, what teachers and leaders did. If you want to improve the morale of your staff in a really difficult year, do, do that. Yeah, I'm so with you, Doug, on the 100 days. I do uh, substitute principal jobs, you know, every now and then. I just I just did a 30-day substitute principal job for a month, and I was just the sub, and we made change in those 30 days. So, you know, people think, like, not to undermine it, but, like, it's not that hard. I think so often we complicate things, and we make them so – there's so many options, and we just try to do way too many things. And when you have those smaller – those smaller – kind of outlook on it um, and then grow it and grow it as you go and then do 150 days and then 200 and then you kind of grow off of that. And that really makes me think about grading. And I mean, just along the conversation that we're having tonight and talking about grading, and I know you've written a lot about this, but what are some ideas about how to achieve equity, excellence, uh, maybe some few top tips for implementing fair and accurate grading for students? Um, and why is that important right now? I'm going to be taking notes because I personally have a third and a fifth grader and I'm constantly looking at my kids' teachers and grading and why did they do that and why is there even a grade attached to something? So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I noticed in your question, you said a few. So I, I gather you're not asking for a dissertation, but a few tips. And that is right because teachers don't want, you know, dozens of new initiatives. There's too many new initiatives out there right now. However, the fact that there's too many doesn't mean that the answer is zero initiatives. The answer is, as you suggest, a few that really have high impact. So there have been multi-hundred page books written about grading. Most of them are too complicated. That's why they never get implemented. So let me just give you two big ideas. Big idea number one, don't use the average. In every state, every state that our, our listeners are in, at least in the US, 50 out of 50 states, as well as Canadian provinces, uh, we've had standards for more than 20 years. The essence of that is we evaluate students about the achievement of a standard, not the average throughout the entire 
period of time. So empower teachers to evaluate students, whatever grading system they're used, but don't use the average. It kills me when elementary schools say we've got standards-based grading, but they're still averaging all the marks throughout the grading term. That's not standards-based grading. It's only appropriate when I'm evaluating a student on how they finish, not how they start. And I would also tell you that if I can eliminate the average, that is a key to social and emotional learning. Everybody says, oh, Doug, we want, after the trauma of the last 18 months, social and emotional learning, resilience, perseverance. You can't say that and say, but I'm still going to punish you at the end of the semester for all the mistakes you made four or five years ago. That's the opposite, or four or five months ago, rather. That is the opposite of resilience. So, so getting rid of the average is big idea number one. And big idea number two is go back to old-fashioned marks of, and I don't care, I'm agnostic about A, B, C, D, F, or 43210. That's frankly an unhelpful argument to have. If your culture values A, B, C, D, F, fine. But the key is every person listening, and if you shared this with your teaching staffs, all of them could tell me the difference between an A and a B and a B and a C. But you want to know what none of them can tell you? The difference between a 43 and a 44 a 79 and an 80, an 89 and a 90. Those are all distinctions without a difference. And, and it leads teachers to argue over points with parents and students instead of talking about achievement. So just go back to old fashioned A, B, C, D, F, or if you prefer 43210, stop the nonsense of the 100 points. You don't have to do it. It undermines quality. And, and here's the other thing that I think our listeners might respond to it undermines respect for teachers. Because when the parent calls the elementary school teacher and says, how many points does my child need to get from a three to a four or a, a B to an A? That's disrespectful. A respectful conversation is, what does my child need to learn and show and do in order to get better? And when parents all the time say, well, I want my kid prepared for the real world. Let me tell you, colleagues, the real world is not about getting on the dean's list with extra points or getting promoted to managing partner in the law firm with extra credit. It's about performance, not points. So that's it, Adam. Two things, get rid of the average, focus on performance, not points. We can do those two things. You don't need the you know, 50 point plan. I love it. Awesome. So I don't know if I ever told you this, um, Dr. Reeves, but one of my favorite studies as a first year principal was your 90-90 study. Like we talked about it all the time. It's an administrative group. And I hear that you've updated it. So would you mind telling us real briefly um, a little bit about that update and specifically what are a couple of your findings when it came to really kind of moving the needle when it came to student learning, student growth and performance? So just for people who may not be familiar with it, the 90-90-90 studies were studies of schools that were high poverty, 90% or more free and reduced lunch, high minority, either ethnic or linguistic minority, more than 90%, and high performance, that is 90% or more meeting or exceeding state standards, that hence the 90-90-90. However, what always happens in research is people say, well, that's great, Doug, but what have you done for me lately? So what I did was to update all of that, and, and I want to be really clear. When I originally did that, I was kind of alone in the wilderness. The, the most important part of this new book, Achieving Equity and Excellence, is honoring other scholars who really have made big contributions. Shout out to Karen Chenoweth, for example, who has had wonderful series of books, starting with It's Being Done, published by Harvard Ed Press, uh, to Heather Zadowski, who talked about 
bringing school reform to scale in low-performing, high-poverty schools. Um, so Zadovsky's work, Stephen Graham, uh, who is, you know, I started a lot of work on nonfiction writing. Uh, Professor Graham has dramatically improved that. So I've, I've really tried to honor other scholars, uh, not just my, my own work, because people also need to know, is this just one researcher or is this the preponderance of the evidence? And I think what I tried to do in this book is say, this is not one guy. I don't want people reading that book and saying, Doug said, I'm just one pebble on the mountain of research. I want people to look at the whole mountain, not me. Now, with respect to what the new findings are, I guess the most important thing is most of it isn't new. There's substantial multi-decade validation of the findings, nonfiction writing, collaborative scoring, the trophy case effect, all those things I wrote about before, still true today, laser-like focus on achievement. But I did add a couple of things that I learned that I think are important to our, our listeners, because I recognize that not every listener is serving a high poverty school. So for example, back to Adam's question, professional learning communities, clearly that collaborative effort, and I'm agnostic as Rick DeFore would be about what you call them. You can call them teacher teams, you can call them building teams. I don't care what you call them, just collaborate collaborate in a consistent way that focuses on learning assessment, intervention, enrichment. And we found PLCs to be a hallmark in the latest studies of high-performing, high-poverty schools. But there's one other very counterintuitive finding. Most of my life for all my career has been in high-poverty schools. But occasionally, I get a toe in the water in international schools and independent schools and super high-performing and wealthy schools in the United States. And here's what I found. They do the same thing. You know, these super high-performing schools where parents are paying 50 grand in tuition do nonfiction writing, collaborative scoring, the trophy case effect, all those things that I was writing about. And to me, this raises a fundamental equity issue. Because if that's what rich kids get in terms of, of all these professional practices, then all of the kids that we serve in public education deserve the same thing. And, and I think in conversations with parents and board members, if you just say, well, this is just about what poor kids get, or this is just about what you what high equity schools get, you'll lose some of our policymakers in today's very contentious political environment. When you say, this is excellence, this is what the Singapore American School does, the highest performing international school in the planet. This is what, uh, uh, you know, Minnetonka Public Schools, you know, one of the highest performing public schools in the United States. This is what Harvard Westlake, what BBNN, what these great independent schools do, and your ch children deserve the same thing. That changes the whole conversation away from just, you know, let's feel sorry for the poor kids to let's be excellent because all of our kids deserve the same opportunities for, for excellence. Well, Rachel, I think we're gonna need to have Dr. Reeves on like every quarter because I have about 15 more questions that I wanna ask you. In the meantime, everybody listening, be sure, go follow Doug on Twitter. It's at Douglas Reeves, that's two E's. R-E-E-V-E-S. Uh, we'll get it linked in the show notes. We can get the 90-90-90 study linked in the show notes. And then I know there was one other uh, study you were talking about, Rachel. We might, we'll make sure that yep. we get that linked. Light. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll make sure we get oh, that yeah. linked in the show notes. Uh, thank you again for joining this episode of the NAESP Principal Podcast. You can learn more about NAESP at naesp.org. And again, Rachel already said it. I'm going to say it again. Be sure to sign up. Go to Louisville. Uh, it's a great city. It's, it's a fun time. 
we, you can't see uh, Doug, but I can't, I think Doug, you want to say something else. So I'm going to pass the microphone yeah. over to you. I can just, I can feel it. And I'm the same way when I want to say something else, the show is yeah. not over. Don't stop it. Doug, close us out. Well, I will. And, and I do have something important to, to say. Um, and that is when COVID started um, in March of 2020, I, I live about three blocks from Mass General Hospital. You probably saw on the news, what seven o'clock every night, we beat these pans and we'd hold out signs. Thank you, first responders. Thank you, nurses. Thank you, doctors. Thank you, therapists. All these things. And I did it too, because I really believed that those people deserved our appreciation. But at the same time, I was thinking, what about teachers? What about principals? When do they get their parade? When do they get their pots and pans banging? And I don't know if that's happened yet in your community, probably not. So let me just say it as we close out this session. I wanna tell you as a parent, as a colleague, as a citizen, thank you, thank you, thank you. And tell your staff the same thing because colleagues, they need to hear it. And don't wait for the parade, tell them today. Yeah, we couldn't agree more, Doug. Thank you again, Rachel. Everyone, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for all you do. And have an absolutely amazing day.